0: As we lean into this first um, fall season of kickoff together, I thought what better way to do that than to journey through the book of Ephesians. Now why Ephesians, you may ask? Ephesians, authored by the Apostle Paul, was written to the church in Ephesus, although it's most likely, likely it was written not only the, to them, but it was intended to be su- uh, for the surrounding churches in the area, And that's why there's not a lot of specific references to people or uh, specific instances as Paul usually does in his letters, even though we know from Acts 19 and 20, he was a pastor and served in Ephesus for, for about three years. So Ephesians is the only letter in the New Testament that is not written in response to a problem or a misunderstanding that the church is having. Instead, it sets out a vision for who the church is to be as they live out their new life in Christ. It exposes the healthy soil and root system of a church that's growing in all the healthy ways, flourishing to become what God intends for her. Ephesians sets a roadmap for where the church should be headed together as a community with the crucial reminder that God in His grace has already given them everything they need to get there. And isn't that what we long for right now for this church, for City Church? Don't we long to see City Church grow and flourish in all the healthy ways? And so we're gonna use Ephesians as our guide to help us stay on track, for just what kind of vision God has for us and intends us to be. And spoiler alert, uh, who God intends us to be is shared right here in the first few verses. Paul has taken his English classes to heart, so he puts his thesis right here in the introduction. Verse 4, to be holy and blameless, or as the message translates, whole and holy. Now, it's generally assumed that churches are to be full of people who've come to faith in Jesus and who are seeking to live changed lives. The word, the New Testament uh, epistle or letters used for this is saints. It means literally holy ones. So you can see, two God's holy people or saints in Ephesus. And in that day, that phrase carried the connotation of dedicated to a deity, set apart for them. Throughout the Old Testament, this phrase is used to describe the nation Israel, but once Jesus arrives on the scene, it's extended uh, to include anyone who is following Jesus. But what I want us to see is that contrary to some perspectives on spirituality, Paul is urging us in this book to have a spiritual life that's gonna impact every other aspect of our lives, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the relational, the behavioral, the vocational, the financial, and on and all. Paul is convinced, and I think we need to be as well, that the way of life God wants for his people, for his saints, holiness, is not just good for God, as in good press or good advertising for him, but it's good for us. It makes us whole. Holiness is holistic. It's healthy living. It invites us into a way of life that is a breath of fresh air that we might call human flourishing. And that's what we're going to explore as a community of God's people together in this series. But it all starts with God. (laughs) And this is, again, what makes Ephesians distinctive. Rather than focusing on the human problems that are inevitably going to develop in a church, the human error piece of church, in Ephesians, Paul wants to explore God and his glory because that is what gives the church her unique identity, her DNA, if you will. That's who she is and how she is to live in this world. And so it's fitting that this first passage we come to does just that. It focuses on who God is. And Paul is so enthralled with God, he just goes on and on. (laughs) It's not apparent from our English translation, but this passage, verses 3 to 14, are actually one long sentence in Greek. This is not unusual for Paul. There's actually five really lengthy sentences in this book. But coming in at 202 words, this is the second longest sentence in the New Testament. And you thought I was long-winded. As Paul begins to set out who this church is, he begins with God and he gets caught up in God's goodness. Like a snowball tumbling down a hill, getting larger with every rotation, this vision of who God is and what he has done in Christ just grows the longer he talks. And in that way this passage isn't merely theology. It's doxology. It is intended to lead us into praising God for who he is. It's intended to peel back the curtain, to give us a view of the throne room. And when we do, we cry along with the psalmist, the Lord is in his temple and all cry, glory. This passage itself is bookended with glory. Verse verse 1, praise or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. One writer put it this way, what we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And indeed, if you could hear or read this passage in its original language, you would notice the phrases flow rhythmically and produce what one scholar called a chant-like effect. Well, how about that? The Apostle Paul is one of the first spoken word artists. Indeed, Paul draws on a particular rhetorical style utilized by the Greeks in the first century, which sought to move the listener with lofty language, and the length of the sentence was determined by how much the speaker could say in one breath. So I want you... To settle in this morning. Because today I simply want to remind us of this vision of who God is and what He has done. This is reality, whether we are attuned to it or not. Imagine, with me, if you will, it's a really hot day, let's say 95 degrees in July, not hard to imagine, given the summer we've had. You're at a pool and it's really crowded. The kids are screaming, there is splashing all around you. Do you remember what it feels like to take a deep breath and plunge under the water and remain there for a couple of seconds? It's like a different world under there. The sounds are muffled, it's peaceful, it's calm. There's two different realities going on at the same time, the noise out there and then the calm inside. And this morning, I want us to take a deep breath, come away from the chaos and the noise and the commotion, and plunge into the depths of this great God to remember our reality. Here's the passage, and I'm not an opera singer or trained orator, so I will not be able to say this all in one breath. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. As I wrestled with how to communicate these truths in a way that preserved the wonder and praise embedded in the text, I thought, well, maybe I could mention the Trinitarian nature of these verses, how the Father is highlighted in verses 3 to 6, and the Son in verses 7 to 12, and the Holy Spirit's unique role in verses 13 to 14, or how all that is described here fits within the broad scope of all time. Verse 4, pointing back to before the foundations of the earth. Verse 10, looking ahead to the future culmination of all the ages and everything in between, describing what life is like now that Christ has come. But then I thought, I would also want to tell you how all 202 terms in this sentence the only main verb of them is in verse 4. God chose us in him. And that seems significant because every other word, every other participle, prepositional phrase, adjectival phrase depends on that main verb. And every other phrase supports the subject of this main verb, which is God syntactically this sentence is declaring God is the subject he has taken decisive action God is always previous he is the source and originator of all things we are mere recipients God and his action and works in the world always precede us and I thought about how easy it is for me for all of us really to get consumed by the chaos and noise swirling around us. And as, to Eugene, as Eugene Peterson says, quietly, subversively nudge God off to the side, close enough that we could summon him if needed, but out of the way enough that we get center stage. We're good at making everything about us, and I thought it's probably good to remind us that long before we showed up on the scene, God was at work. Verse four describes the pre-creation eternity and that God formed a purpose in his mind. He was hatching a plan. As much as I want to call the shots about when he gets to make an entrance and appear on stage, the reality is that he was front and center long before I had a pulse. But then I thought I would want to point out to you that this main verb God chose is supported actually by seven key participles. Verbs in our English translation that, when together, paint a powerful picture of who we are. And maybe the best way to describe each of them is to describe what God has done for us and the implications of that on who we are. I'll explain. Verse 4, blessed. And I don't mean blessed here in the southern sense that can be used as a precursor to slamming someone, as in, bless his heart. He was hit with the ugly stick was a baby. I mean, praise be. The sentence is actually, blessed be the God who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's a call to praise and thank the God who has it all and who chose not to be stingy with it. He is rich and he delights in sharing his wealth with us. Or as I said last week, God is gratuitous in his generosity. So if we have been blessed by God, then we are rich. Verse four, chosen. What makes this so significant is that God did not choose us on a whim because he felt sorry for us or because no one else would have us. It's not like we were the runt of the litter who'd been picked over by everyone else and was the only one left to take home, as was the case with our little pup. As the message paraphrases, long before he laid the earth foundations, he had us in mind. He settled on us as the focus of his love. Because God has chosen us, we have value. Verse 5, destined in the niv the word is predestined and that word can cause a lot of misunderstanding even anxiety and that's unfortunate because the point of this passage as new testament scholar klein snodgrass points out is doxology not just systematic theology the point of this word is to emphasize the value god places on human beings to draw them to himself And as with any topic in theology, we must often balance opposing aspects of God's character. Paul's emphasis here on God choosing has nothing to do with determinism or fatalism. It doesn't override human agency or human responsibility. So let's not lose the focus of the passage by a word that only occurs twice in all 202 words. What Paul is getting at with the word destined is similar to the idea of chosen that our lives are not random. But its emphasis is more on where we're headed, what we're destined for. Because we have been destined, we have purpose. Blessed, chosen, destined, the fourth of the seven key words is bestowed. It's translated given in verse six. But given is kind of a weak translation for this word. Paul actually takes the noun grace, charis, and puts it in a verbal form. So like the company Google became so popular, we can now use it as a verb as in, you should Google it. Grace is so abundant, so ubiquitous, so predominant that we have been graced. (laughs) In fact, the phrase Paul uses here in verse 6 is literally, to his glorious grace, which he graced us with in the one he loved. So maybe not just given, but poured out, drenched. And this pouring out is all because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. His death is the means by which we can be in relationship with God. He cleanses us. He forgives our wrongdoing. He frees us. Because God has bestowed his grace on us, we are forgiven. And as that word hinted at, we aren't receiving the bare minimum. Verse eight, in accordance with the riches of his grace that God lavished on us. That's the fifth verb. That's a great word. Paul loves this word, actually. He uses it every chance he can get. Lavish occurs 78 times in the New Testament. Over half of those, 45, are by Paul. And you might say, is he overdoing it? Eugene Peterson writes, I don't think so. In matters of grace, hyperboles, our understatements. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a conversation with someone from our triage team. They are a group of saints uh, seeking to help us in this season when we're without an operations and facilities staff member. And at one point in the conversation, Jack Frangipani gave this great image. He said, there's a pool of grace, and it is present, and it is future, and we all get it. And I thought, now that's a pool I want to swim in. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Because God has lavished his love and grace on us, we are overflowing. We can freely extend that love and grace to others because of the extravagance given us. But we aren't just lavished on, verse 9, he made known to us, or he revealed to us, we're not in the dark. We aren't treated as mere recipients. We're treated as trusted confidence. We're in on the action. We're we're in the know. We're co-workers together. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Because God has made known to us his will, we are trusted. And one more in this set of seven, verse 10, gathered up. Or as the NIV translates, to bring unity to all things under Christ. (laughs) Suddenly we realize this is a collective effort. We are not in this alone. Christ is the one who unites us and brings us together. This word is actually taken from the word for head. So the image is a body all united, all intricately connected together under the head, Jesus Christ. Because God has gathered us up in these ways and given, lavished his grace on us, we are together. We are not in this alone. And I thought, if I want to share all this God of glory has done for us, those seven words are a good place to start. But then I thought, if I talk about being chosen, I would just have to say more about this rich metaphor of adoption. Because this passage says we're chosen for adoption as his children. And that this was a familiar metaphor in the first century church. It was common among Greeks and Romans to secure a family's heritage uh, to manage their wealth. And these adopted children would receive the same rights as the biological children. And how impactful it is to think about the whole purpose of being chosen wasn't primarily to think a certain way or behave in a certain way, or be God's minions in the world, but rather to become part of God's family. Verses four to five, chosen before the foundations of the world and destined for adoption. The whole point of this choosing was to be in relationship with us. And that made me recall my good friend who was adopted as an infant, is now middle-aged. He recently told a story about his how his adoption impacted him. He said, you know, growing up, I never felt unwanted. My experience was actually the opposite. Because my parents had experienced the challenge of infertility, and they had prayed for me. They longed for me. They wanted me. They chose me. I always lived with a sense of being wanted and chosen because of my adoption. And I thought about how each one of us has a story of being unwanted, excluded, being left on the outside. We don't make the team, or our good friend moves on to others, or the person we thought was the one doesn't see a future with us. I heard a barista at Starbucks one time tell me how awful it is to serve middle school girls after school when they get out because one of them will pull out her parents' credit card, true story, and say, I'm buying for everyone here except her. The pain of being excluded, rejected, unwanted, it is almost too much to bear. So when we hear chosen, adapted as his children. We are blown away. We belong. Someone wants us. Someone values us. Someone wants to be in relationship with us. We take a deep breath and we settle into this love, this gift of acceptance and belonging. But then I thought, I would be remiss not to mention one key phrase peppered throughout this entire passage. It appears 11 times in these first 14 verses, 39 times in our book overall, and it's the phrase, in Christ. We're going to hear more about this throughout our series, but for today, being in Christ is Paul's shorthand. For anyone who is part of this forgiven, redeemed humanity made possible through Jesus. It's identification with, incorporation with, participation with, union with Christ. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. And this is true regardless of what we may think about ourselves or what others may say about us. We have a new identity. This is where the metaphor of adoption can be powerful. When an individual who's been adopted seeks to locate their biological family members, either to learn more of their story or to learn more about their genetic makeup or medical history, they submit a DNA test. And if they find a match, they know they are interacting with some biological relative. You cannot deny DNA. Just as a DNA test reveals an adopted person's true identity genetically, so too does this passage reveal our true identity in Christ, whether we live with an awareness of that or not. This is who we are, friends, all because of God's generous love and decision to choose us, to adopt us. We are his children, his delight. And let's be clear about what the nature of that relationship is. Often we talk more about Christ being in us. I don't know if you can see that. Christ in us. Um, Even when I was a child, we sort of had the language, I asked Jesus into my heart. And when we do that, we define reality. And Jesus is about one inch tall. (laughs) He takes up as much space as we are. But instead... If we talk about us being in Christ, then he determines reality and encompasses all that we are and more. Now, both these drawings symbolize how we're united to Christ, but the nature of how we're connected, that we are in him, is so comforting, so reassuring, so confidence-building, so freeing. And then... I realized I just had to say a word about how this connection takes place by the role of the precious Holy Spirit and how Paul gives two images to describe the Spirit's role in our lives, seal and deposit or down payment. The seal, verse 13. Seals were used in various ways in the first century from officials sealing letters to show their authenticity, to binding animals, to clearly show, branding animals, to clearly show who owned that property. Authenticity and ownership. You belong to me. That sentiment is captured specifically in the last verse of this passage. Those who are God's possession. We belong to God the Father through Christ. And the Spirit assures us of this reality. He seals the deal. Paul says it like this in a different letter. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. But not just belonging, assurance of our good future. If I were to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in this passage, I would want to make sure that we knew that this word deposit or down payment in verse 14 has a particular meaning. In the ancient world, commercial transactions were done by signing a contract and then paying the first installment of that cost as a pledge that the remaining portion would come. So the seller had a guarantee you would make all final payments because of that first installment. God gives us the Holy Spirit as the assurance that he will indeed bring all things to fruition that he will one, we will one day be holy and blameless. Our future is set and secure. We can be confident of that. I figured I could tell you all those things, or I could just end now and let us hear afresh what it is that God has done. Let those words wash over you with the hope that we could bask in that and do what this in passage intends, which is to give God praise and glory by worshiping him. I think that's probably best. I think I'll do that. So after I read these verses once again, we'll spend a few moments in worship. May you be reminded of just how great our God is and who he has called us to be. Worship team's gonna come. Ephesians 1 Verses three to four, this time from the message translation, just to make it fresh for you. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Christ Jesus. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son, Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds and not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs for us, for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, delivered by the Holy Spirit. This down payment from God is just the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. Thanks be to God.